This is the Oanda Podcast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, speaking to Oanda senior market analysts from around the world with all the latest business and market news. And today it is Jeff Halley in Singapore. Good morning from London. Good afternoon to you. And g'day, Johnny. Great to be here. Before we look at the markets, Jeff, I wanted to ask you about silver. Silver prices leaping to a five-month high after the commodity became the latest target of small-time traders emulating the frenzy that drove up GameStop shares last week. And it's interesting to see a handful of smaller Australian mining firms surging as well. So uh, catching fire in all sectors now, isn't it? Yeah, they just won't be denied these chaps. So, I mean, silver itself is up 7% in Asia today. Uh, that makes it up nearly 15% over the last three sessions. There's a couple of reasons behind this. I think one, silver is much cheaper to buy than gold, but also silver, even on the futures markets normally, is much less liquid than uh, gold, gold futures are. You can manipulate that price much easier. You typically see much higher volatility in silver than you do in gold. So this is probably one of those uh, commodities that suits uh, the Reddit army, as I'm calling them. Now, whether they're going to actually succeed in the longer term is another thing altogether. I like that, the Reddit army. You came up with that, did you? I did indeed. I've come up with a few witty uh, Reddit things. Uh, even my daily commentary today is the hunt for Reddit October. I'm I'm on a bit of a roll with these things. Very good. Uh, Even coin selling websites are reporting uh, unprecedented demand. What's next? Yeah, that's a good question. Look, silver itself, um, people have come a cropper in the past trying to corner the silver market. The most famous one were the, uh, the Hill Brothers in the late 1970s, around 1980. And they actually drove the price of silver up to $50 an ounce but uh, they were um, met an untimely end with that positioning. And they, used, they turned from billionaires to bankrupts in, in the space of one, one, one day. We have to be careful. There's actually an underlying physical market that is off exchange uh, that runs a- along. And, and it's actually a lot more liquid in the OTC market than perhaps these, uh, the, the, these retail traders have been led to believe. So they're playing perhaps a more dangerous game here with more mainstream asset markets than they would be in you know, illiquid stocks such as GameStop and AMC. On, on the coin front, uh, this coin, what's it called? Dog coin or something like that, halved in value over the weekend. I think it was created as a joke or something, but it had also been pumped up by these Reddit traders. And it shows you the perils uh, of messing around in these uh, cryptocurrencies to some extent where you know those people who bought that particular coin on Friday lost half of their money over the weekend. Uh, Bitcoin itself though, uh, you know, it's still holding steady around $34,000 a, a coin. You have to again treat these coins with a, a degree of caution. They don't have the liquidity of mainstream assets and what typifies them is short-term momentum. So when everybody wants to buy, they raise higher, but as soon as they turn down, the, the exit door is very, very small with a lot of people trying to get out of it. And again, you can see that in intraday swings 10, 20%. So uh, if, if it was easy to make money, everybody would be doing it. And uh, that, that would be the, the, the note of caution that I would uh, be passing on to listeners at the moment. 
Indeed, and I'm sure there's quite a lot of uh, Generation Z or millennials who've never even considered going into markets like this. And suddenly it seems very attractive. But, you know, the old adage, let the buyer beware. Yeah, definitely. There's a difference between tradable and investable. So to me, cryptocurrencies in their present form uh, are tradable, i.e. they have volatility and they move around intraday or intraweek and you could buy low and sell high or buy high and sell low and have a bad week. But the intraday volatility of these assets is so high that they don't really have a place in an investment portfolio. So the nature of behavioural finance is that when, when traders put positions on, they don't envisage that they could lose money. They can only really envisage that they're going to make money. And that can lead to bad decisions when you know, something you buy goes down in price straight away. They need to be careful about uh, this sort of game of musical chairs with these crypto assets. Uh, the person who's holding that asset, if you want to call it that, when the music stops, is the owner. And that asset could be worth a lot less than what they originally paid for it, especially if they're going into it in a leverage basis, which is effectively like lighting a match and throwing it in a tin of petrol. Indeed. Let's look at the more traditional uh, markets, Jeff. A bit of a bounce back after last week's losses so far on Asian markets. I've got to say, Johnny, it's been a really confusing day and everybody has been asking me why uh, equities have rallied today and I'm scratching my head about it as well. Stocks in New York finished about 2% lower the main indices on Friday. The futures markets on those opened up 1% lower early this morning in Asian trading, yet uh, Tokyo and Seoul both opened up 2% higher nearly uh, this morning. And uh, China also rallied quite strongly. So did uh, Hong Kong, so did Taiwan. Uh, so we saw this uh, north-south divide. The ASEAN countries in the south of Asia were mostly negative for the day, whereas the northern countries, the ones that have really benefited from the tech-driven work-from-home boom, they all raced higher. And I'm wondering, actually, if the market is starting to reassess now the pace of the economic recovery. We all know the problems that are going on with the logistics of vaccine rollouts. It's much less doses being produced. It's going a lot slower than expected. So maybe the, the well, my actual feeling is, is that the pace of this recovery is really only going to gather momentum in the second half of 2021. And I think that what we're seeing now is uh, a reassessment by the markets on, on that front as well, pushing back that recovery timing till further back in the year. Thus, uh, we've gone back to that rotation back into tech-heavy working-from-home markets as opposed to these uh, commodity-driven cyclical markets which dominate ASEAN. So I'm expecting uh, Europe to open up slightly higher today, but they're very cyclical markets as well, so they won't see the same performance that we saw in parts of Northern Asia today. Jeff, the UK is set to join a free trade area today with the 11 Asia and Pacific nations. The uh, aptly named, I don't think so, Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP, which is uh, slightly more easier to say. Um, how important as a group is this free trade area? It's a good political move for the UK to do this. But in terms of trade how important is it 
Yeah, I can't even pronounce the uh, the letters quickly either without tripping over myself, to be honest. Look, I, my understanding is that the U, the UK is asking for permission or they are, they're requesting to join it. So uh, that will be a drawn out process. We have to remember the CCPPT took about 11 years to get over the line. And what it is, is really rolling up a lot of bilateral agreements between all of these Asian nations and putting them into one document. So it wasn't hugely accretive for, for Asian trade or for Asian GDP initially. Where its real benefit is, is that it opens up supply chains between countries. So if you build a part of a bicycle in Indonesia and then you send it to be finished off in Vietnam, often Viet, Vietnam, for example, might say, well, that's an imported part, so we'll tax it sort of thing. If you, if you get my understanding of this process, what this... this uh, document does is make all of those logistics seamless so there isn't any duties intra-zone and it makes it much easier to manufacture stuff across countries. So I guess it's where the UK would fit into that supply chain because Asia is in Asia but the UK is on the other side of the world. Yeah, so, and it's not uh, just Asia, it's Australia, it's New Zealand, countries which aren't exactly neighbours. It, correct. So I, I think it'd be very positive if they joined it for, for, for Britain and I think for the greater grouping. Uh, but I don't see it being, uh, apart from being a PR win, I don't see it being an immediate driver of a, a huge amount of growth in the UK. Having said that, you mentioned Indonesia, you mentioned Vietnam. I mean, you know, we do a lot of trade, of course, a huge amount of trade with China, but maybe we'll start to veer away from uh, China and more towards these other nations. Well, I think that's actually a very sound strategy. You can see the problems that Australia has had by allowing itself to become a one-trick pony where their export market basically sells everything they produce to China. And China starts uh, getting a bit funny, and then they start erecting barriers and, and such like. It's Australia that gets hurt because they haven't got all these alternative markets. So they've allowed this concentration risk. The EU, you could say, is slightly guilty of the same thing with regards to China and their latest trade deal with China. So given that the UK has to find its own place in the world as a as a, as a commercial wheeler dealer, the way that they used to, I guess, uh, in the old empire days, if you want to look back to it at that stage, this actually makes a lot more sense. There's no point having your only export market being one or two countries. That leaves you vulnerable as a country. It's much better to spread that risk. So in this case, I think it would be a good, uh, a good decision for them. Well, meanwhile, Jeff, the UK vaccination programme continues to pick up pace. The huge row with the EU seems to have abated for the time being. That was a, a huge own goal from the EU. I and mean, going forward, perhaps the UK will work more closely with these sorts of nations on things like the vaccination programmes. Look, totally. I, I think the problem is, particularly with regards to AstraZeneca, which is partially UK, partially Swedish, is the problem is just producing the amount of vaccines and the time that countries are looking for them. I think it's very positive, though, that the UK has got so far ahead on the vaccination track. I, I do believe yesterday they did a record number of, or is it Saturday, a record number of daily vaccinations, over half a million. Absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, number. and I think apart from being a wonderful acknowledgement of uh, the National Health Service, etc., etc., the UK will be on track at that pace uh, to emerge from this pandemic a long time before Europe does. I was doing some quick calculations today and it was somewhere in, I think, about 
the end of Q2 or early Q3, they would have reached their herd immunity uh, target. But certainly in the use of soft power, and we're seeing China do it with vaccines at the moment. Indonesia's bought hundreds of millions of them off China, and China's doing exactly this, the soft power with vaccines. And that wouldn't be a bad idea for the UK either. The, the thing is, is, it's the production bottlenecks that they need to get past. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting, Jeff. Before we let you go, I just wanted a quick preview of the week ahead. What are you looking out for? We've got India's budget, uh, which I thought would have started by now, but I haven't seen anything really coming out on the wires. That's going to be very closely watched by the rest of Asia, uh, particularly if they... um, looking for how much they want to, ex- how, how fiscally expansionary it's going to be and whether they're going to bring in any new uh, uh, taxation to actually pay for that. Uh, it should be positive for Indian equities uh, and other regional stock exchanges. We've got the US uh, stimulus package. The, the Republicans came out over the weekend with a $600 billion counteroffer. So that's quite a widespread, $600 billion versus $1.9 trillion. I think if the horse trading gets down to $1 trillion, that could be potentially markets negative because I think the market's built in sort of $2 trillion with the stimulus and they haven't really thought of the consequences of that package being much smaller than expected. Uh, We've got the Reserve Bank of Australia tomorrow. We've got the Bank of England later this week, rate decisions. And then the week ends out with uh, uh, US non-farm payrolls. So given that, I think we're going to have quite a busy week. They will carry more weight. They're only expected to add about 50,000 jobs uh, uh, for, for, for January, which is a very low number. But if that number comes in quite negative, like well below, uh, you know, sort of minus 100, 150,000, then that could uh, set uh, equity markets up in particular for a, a pretty, uh, a, a bit of a sorry end to the week. And it could lead to more US dollar strength. Okay, Jeff Halley in Singapore. Have a great week and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much.